Amen. You can grab a seat. So glad you're with us this morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, you know, you're going to have to be fast this morning. We're going to kind of bounce around. We'll start in Psalm 18 with that passage Eduardo read. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Psalm 18. If not, we'll have those words on the screen for you. We'd love to give you a copy of the Bible on your way out. But uh, kind of a theme that came up as we were singing was in Excelsis? Deo. Uh, You don't know how to say it. I don't know how to say it, and you don't know what it means. So let's talk for a second about that phrase. What that phrase means, and I Googled it. I don't know Latin either, but it means glory to God in the highest. What it's describing is glory to God, but with... uh, Without restraint, tell me if you felt like I felt when we were watching that video. So there's the video. These people are sharing the gospel in Mozambique. They're talking to these people, and they're people that are going to have to respond to the gospel with life and death consequences. Was there a little part of you that wanted to sort of pull back from that? Was there a little part of you that wanted those missionaries to like slow down a little bit? Did you feel a little bit nervous about that? Because they're telling this stuff to these people and these people might get killed for it. They said as much in the video. Was there a part of you that thought, hey, Jesus is great, but let's not get carried away. Like I also feel that Jesus is good, but let's not tell this to people in a situation where they might have to die for it. In excelsis Deo is a little too excelsis. It's a little too, it's a little too extra. I, I don't know that we understand the, the way that the Bible talks about these things, because the Bible talks about these things in very extreme categories. And for us, just so little of what our lives involve is life or death. Not just because things seem to be safe. I'm just saying things that we describe as beliefs are generally held with a pretty light grasp in our culture. Because, yeah, that's great, and I'm glad it works. But is it true, true? Is it capital T true? Eh, Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Is that the conviction of somebody who's going to bleed for this idea, for this person? See, I think... As we talk about Christianity, as we talk about Christmas and the message of Christianity expressed during Christmas, we talk about something that is a little difficult. There's an extremity to it that I don't know that you and I really have reconciled because nobody put a gun to your head when you said yes to Christ. I think you need to understand how extreme it is, though. God doesn't talk about himself and his relationship to you in these sort of like percentages, (laughs) that he's a little involved, that he's a little bit Lord, that he's somewhat God. I, I don't know that you have thought as well about it as you should, because we say that Jesus is God made flesh, that he is He is God who's come to be among us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And the way that you describe it goes back to this understanding of who you think he is, the way in which you want to relate to him. You can describe it as his his coming to be with us. You can describe it as a rescue. 
That's the idea of the gospel. We, we consider it to be a rescue. God coming to be among us and bring us back to himself. Or, and this is where the absolute, the categories, the black and white sort of makes us uncomfortable. You can describe it as an invasion. Let's read. So Psalm 18, this is what Eduardo read for us just a second ago, thinking about God's love for us. And amen. It describes the last part of it. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God is doing what he's, we're about to describe here in verse 16 the following. Out of his incredible love for us. That's what we're saying about the whole of Jesus coming to be with us is that he has come as John 3.16 says, for God's love. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So this, this coming of Christ, this Emmanuel moment of Christmas is from God's love. But what did he do in his love? Well, it says in verse 16, God sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Wow, yes, thank you, Lord. Rescue me. Draw me out of many waters. Rescue me from the strong enemy. Amen. Yes, thank you. But if you read the whole of Psalm 18, it describes God's rescue in really extreme ways. If you read the beginning of Psalm 18, he describes being surrounded by these enemies, that, that death it was like a these series of cords and ropes that were holding him down. And he cries out to the Lord and God heard from his high heaven and he came down. And he comes with smoke coming out of his nose and fire coming out of his mouth. He rends the heavens and comes down. There's another word you don't use often, but to rend is to rip open. He breaks apart the heavens in order to come down. As it describes in Psalm 18, mountains melt and seas dry up. He literally turns the world upside down as mountains, which are hard, become like water. And water, which is wet, becomes like dry land from the blasts of his breath. Then we get verse 16. So the world is melting as he gently picks up this one whom he loves and brings him back to himself. He comforts him and he rescues him because he delights in him. Do you see where I'm trying to go with this? It's the same idea, Jesus coming to the rescue, but it's couched in the extremity that we need to see with this gospel message. He has come to be among us. He's come to rescue us, but he's come to be among us. You can see it as a rescue or you can see it as an invasion. It, it kind of depends on how you see him. It kind of depends on what you would like or maybe not so much like about him being with you. I mean, you talk about mountains melting. I like the mountains. I kind of want them to stay where they are. You know, it talks about the sea getting dried up. Okay, I mean, I appreciate you coming, Lord, but I like the beach. You know, a pina colada with the waves and everything. I mean, I don't know, Lord, should you take that away. I mean, there's, there's something wonderful about who he is, and sure, let's keep him around, but maybe not to the extent that he takes over everything in your world. I mean, you have a sick kid, yes, let's pray, let's see the Lord, hopefully, you know, heal this child, but, but just on a regular day, you kind of want him there, but at arm's reach. 
It sounds like, if you felt the same way that I kind of feel like maybe you did with that video, it sounds like, yes, God, but, you know, not, not too much, not too extreme, not to the point of this woman walking away from her livelihood and maybe her life. No, it's witchcraft. Okay, let's figure that out. But, but these people are becoming life and death. They're taking their life in their hands by becoming Christians. Would you be able to tell them to do that? Would, would this Christ be that good? Would he be that lovely? Would he be that important? That's where I think it comes back to the full message of this Christmas season. Do you love him like that? Do you want him if it requires that? Do you, do you love him? There are a thousand, thousand reasons in Scripture for why you should love Him. But at Christmas, we see this intrusion point, Him coming to be among us. And at Christmas time, the person who felt it most you know, clearly was Mary. I'm hoping that today you and I are feeling it pretty harshly. We're feeling it pretty specifically, that we're going to feel it in the whole of its naked truth, that God has come to be with you, meaning be your God. No halfway measures It is a rescue of you for himself. And if you love him, that's a rescue. But if you love anything else more than him, it's an invasion. The way I want you to see it, though, the the eyes that we're going to kind of look through today are going to be Mary's. Because, I mean, if anything is an invasion, (laughs) if anything is invasive, let's say uh, pregnancy is pretty high on that list. Your body's no longer, I've not experienced this, but watching from the outside of my wife's experience, your body's no longer your own. Rachel, poor thing. I mean, we love our children, but she was pregnant, and there's a point where everybody knows, you know, and she's walking around with her baby, and these old ladies would come up to her and pat her on the back and say, oh, isn't this just wonderful? Don't you just love being pregnant? She would go, (laughs) you know, just as noncommittal as possible, because you don't want to be rude. But on the inside, she's like, no! of course not. This is terrible. (laughs) This is awful. The only good part of this is the baby at the end, but no part of the process is lovely. And you think about Mary's experience. God invades. She, all of a sudden, a virgin, is pregnant. That causes all kinds of incredible problems for her. You had to have angels involved for her husband to be. her. Uh, so the, their, their version of engagement back then was much more formal, was much more solidified, and yet the engagement was almost broken because, lo well, and behold, his chaste you know, wife-to-be is found to be with a baby. And Joseph, if you remember the story, was going to break the engagement, but angels get involved, and then Joseph decides to keep her and, and to help her you know, come to this point of giving birth and then to adopt the baby, to raise the baby as his own. And after that point, it just gets harder. Luke 2, 7, as she actually gives birth to her firstborn son and wraps him in swaddling cloths and has to lay him in a manger because there's no place for him in the inn. We talked about that some last week. You think that's got to be the low point? No, it gets much more difficult. It says in Matthew 2, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child with his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Not back to Egypt. If you know the story of Scripture, God called them 
out of Egypt. That's what Moses' name means, to be drawn out. He's, he's this deliverer, and God through Moses, and obviously God, but through Moses, brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then here you have Jesus with Mary and Joseph. They've just had this baby. There's a swaddling cloth situation in a manger because they're displaced. They finally make it home. The Magi come. Then God reveals that, no, Herod the king is trying to kill your baby. You're going to have to flee. You're going to have to become refugees and go back and live in Egypt. It gets hard, and then it gets harder. And it's not enough that some Middle Eastern autocrat is trying to destroy your baby. The Bible is very clear that it goes way bigger than that. There's way more involved than that. The opponent is much greater than just Herod. It says in Revelation 12, this is a story from God giving this vision to John the Apostle about what happened at the birth of Christ. It says, in a, re a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, that's crowns, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. All this has incredible meaning. There's imagery here. We don't have time for it today, but, but hear the main message here. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. You know, we say that there is an enemy working against the work of God. Mary literally is this woman with a dragon trying to eat her, ch her child. It's painful. It's difficult. There is an invasion of this Mary lady, as much as she sees it as a rescue, certainly by the time that Christ raises from the dead. But, but do you understand the pain involved here? Do you understand why it's not just a no-brainer to say yes to Jesus? Why would you then still say yes? Why would you love him? Why would you want him? Why would you want this rescue instead of seeing it as an invasion? Well, it's, it's all here. It's all in these texts that we've been reading. That this Lord doesn't just command these things, doesn't just do these things, doesn't just put his foot into your life. He comes to be with you truly. God comes with you, to be with you in order to suffer with you. Think about the life of Christ. And this is crazy because it didn't have to be this way, we would think. But in order to bring about the miracle of the gospel that God wanted to bring about, it did have to be this way. This is from a guy named Paul David Tripp. He wrote a book on suffering that I would commend to you. I mean, especially around the holidays, a lot of people are thinking about a lot of really hard things. But he says about the life of Jesus, there was no relief to the travail of Jesus. It began with the questionable conditions of his birth to, have, uh, to having to immediately flee with his parents for his life, to being essentially homeless to being despised and rejected, to facing cruel injustice while being betrayed and forsaken by those closest to him, to facing torture and crucifixion, and finally, the ultimate torture of having the Father turn his back on him. None of us would be willing to exchange our life, no matter how hard it has been for the life of Jesus while he was here on earth. He suffered, not just in one way, but in every way. And he suffered, not just for a period of time, but for his entire life. The one to whom we cry when we cry out in pain knows our pain because suffering of some kind was his experience from the moment of his birth until his final breath. Christmas is not easy. This idea that you would have to accept Christ as your king and it might lead you to bleed for him is not easy. 
but you take comfort. You find love. You, you enjoy, in fact, this rescue instead of invasion in understanding that this God isn't cold to that suffering. In fact, he accepts that suffering with you. You know, this is, this is the holiday. It's the same thing that you've done however many years, and yet for a lot of you, this same thing wasn't the same. Somebody wasn't there. Something wasn't able to work the same way it did last year. Maybe the money wasn't there. The relationship wasn't there. Maybe the relationship is over. People are filled with loneliness. Of course, there's all kinds of sickness. Some of it, you know, just kind of slow and small and goes away pretty quickly, and some of it lengthy, incredible disappointment. Well, listen, if you look at the life of Christ, there's no, there's no suffering that you or I endure that he doesn't also take on himself. Did he have to do that? No. But instead of just invading your priorities, instead of just invading your time, he has also invaded your suffering. He's also come to stand by you in your pain. I'm telling you this because I want you to understand why you should love this Christ, why you should desire this Christ, even if it means taking the crown of your life off of your head and giving it to him, even if it means the whole of your world turns upside down and mountains melt and oceans disappear, it would still be good because he is good. If you want him, if you receive him, you don't just receive his lordship, you receive his person, this person, like we've been saying, that is gentle and lowly, that takes on your difficult burden by going down underneath you and lifting it up. That's why he tells you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. How can it be? Because he lifts it with you. He suffers beside you. That is a God worth loving and is a God worth knowing. It, it is a consolation. And you think about Mary, again, you think about this poor girl slash woman that is now having to deal with all of this. What is her consolation? If we're stepping into this question of the suffering of having to receive Jesus, and then oh, what happens with this Jesus in this fallen world, with Herod trying to kill you, with running off and trying to make a home, and all of a sudden a refugee situation in Egypt, and then coming back and still being poor as dirt. Well, her consolation, of course, is ours. It's that she gets to be with Jesus. Think about this. It says in Luke chapter 1, 46 to 49, before Mary has given birth to Jesus, she has this statement of praise that she does with her cousin Elizabeth, who at the time, though she's an old lady, is pregnant with John the Baptist. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Do you see her response? <laughs> Do you understand? If, if pregnancy wasn't worth it, why would people have so many babies? Take a, take a second and ask that question, because it's awful. And yet, there's always a time when my wife would say to me, you know, if I found out I was pregnant, I wouldn't cry. 
That's when we knew, okay, we're almost ready to start having another baby. Because we've had three, you had the first one, and oh my gosh, right? Nobody knew any of this, really. I mean, I know you can read books on it, but then you experience it. Wow, okay, whew, you know, let's be done for as long as possible. And then there's a point where she says, you know, I think if I found out I was pregnant, I wouldn't cry. Now, that wasn't true. She did cry when she found out she was pregnant again. <laughs> but why, though? Why? When she came out to tell me that she was pregnant with our second child, I was playing with our first child. I'm on the bed, and I'm playing with Caroline, and she's still just a little baby, because, again, it was, they were pretty close to each other. <laughs> she's still just a little baby, and I'm playing with her. And Rachel comes out and goes, do you like her? I was like, yeah. Do you want another one? <laughs> Implication. You're pregnant, you know. Oh. Right? Ooh, you know, pros and cons. What are the pros? The cons we're talking about. What are the pros? Well, Mary got to be with Jesus. What is your prize at the end of pregnancy? A baby. A baby. You see moms with babies? Yeah, babies can make you sad sometimes. You know, the colic or the just don't sleep or whatever. But babies also make you really, really happy. Mary got to have that with Jesus. She got to have and hold Jesus. You know, you look at pictures of your kids when they were younger, and you see that outfit. Oh, I remember that outfit. That outfit didn't last long. You know, that one got vomited all over, or that one didn't. The, they, they threw a huge fit, and I couldn't get them to wear that one anymore. And you have these stories. You see a picture where they've got that little smile. That weird kind of half-cocked smile that they don't always do, but you remember, and you remember especially from that time of, of that part of their development, and you just have, as a parent, this, this experience. Now, of course, it's not unique to parenthood. This is just the way I'm kind of looking at it as we're thinking about Mary. This is something that you experience all the time in your friendships, too. If you are faithful enough to love someone over time, you don't have to give birth to them. You can experience that same kind of love and affection, deep, over, overwhelming affection for a person. People that you work with, people that you have lived with, friends that you've been able to keep up with, even though you move to different parts of the country, and you see them again and you go, oh, yeah. It may be hard to love them sometimes, but you love them. See, Jesus, how does it go from being invasion to rescue? Well, it's because he comes to stand with us in our suffering, but it also is because he comes to stand with us. You may lose the mountains and the ocean. You may lose your life, but you get him. He comes and draws you out of those waters. He comes and he brings you to himself. Mary may have had to go through an incredible amount of torment to get there, but then at the end of it, what does she have? She, she has him. He gets you. You get him. I mean, you, you have to give up a lot for him, but what you get with him is way more than anything you've given up. I mean, you, you think about who Jesus says he is. He is not just enough. He is good. You may have to give up something to get him, but when he describes himself, he describes himself as this wine. Take, take my body, take my flesh, take my blood. And it's like wine and bread. It's like wine that leads to life. It's like bread of life that multiplies. It's, he becomes 
water inside of you that wells up so that you're not thirsty anymore. Everything else in this world, every other attempt at satisfaction, every other attempt at being made whole, it just doesn't work. It works for a period, and it may work enough for you to kind of fool yourself into thinking it's working, but eventually the well runs dry. Eventually the water is dry water. What Jesus describes about himself is a water, a a drink that goes down inside you and becomes a well inside you so that you overflow with water. You're not thirsty anymore. How are you not thirsty anymore? Because you're receiving. You're receiving this drink, this water of life. He, He becomes in you this rescuer. He becomes in you this joy. He becomes in you this thing that you would rather have than anything else. And how? How was this How does all this actually work out? Is it just because a baby was born in the Middle East? Or is there some way in which this actually connects to you? Well, God doesn't just stand with you in your suffering. He doesn't just come to be with you in your life. He comes to be with you and to change you, to work on you. This moment when you are hearing about Jesus, this is your merry moment. This is the moment where you find out there's a presence among you. That God has not left you alone. He has invaded. He's come to be in your world, in your life. And you can reject Him right now. But if you accept Him, He becomes your Savior and your Lord. What does that actually look like? Well, I want you to think about Ephesians 2. And the reason I want to get there is because it talks about in verse 10, the idea of being His workmanship. I think sometimes we've missed that because we have in our head this very clear lane for like religion being the eightfold path or, you know, like these, these things that you have to do and these bricks that you have to lay in order to build this ladder to get to this Lord. No, this is a description of how he comes to be with you and then what he de- begins to do in you. It says in Ephesians 4, but God, we're separated from him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's describing Jesus dying and then being raised. And by faith, us also realizing and confessing our sins and then being raised with Christ, made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us. With him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he may show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's in your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's making this clear distinction. You're not building this ladder that you've got to try and climb. This isn't Babel. You're building a tower that you're going to go and then invade heaven and stand there before him in your glory. No, you're dead in your trespasses before a holy God. He comes to rescue you from your own sin, the wrath of God that is stated against your own rebellion. And taking that rebellion upon himself, suffering for you. He goes into the grave and then comes up so that all who would call on him, all who would believe in him, would become his, that he would be with you. It's an invasive process, but he is now 
your Lord and your Savior. He begins to change you. This is that last verse. It says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, Ben, it's just talking about doing good things. That's how you become a good person. No, it's not. It's talking about Jesus saving you, four through seven, uh, four through nine, rather, and then it describes him shaping you. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship is great. It's the right word to use, but it's from the Greek word that we get the word poem from. Poieo. It even sounds like the word poem. Excelsis sounds like the word excess. Poieo sounds like the word poem. You can remember this. That is what he's talking about when he's describing his workmanship. He's describing you as a poem, as a piece of delicate art as carefully chosen words and structure that he puts together in order to build this meaning, this song, this beauty, this truth, this reflection of who he is, remaking you into the image you were supposed to be. Do you see the glory of this? You see the magnitude of this? Do you see why you should excel seize the Deo? You, you should feel this desire to glorify him? Ah, listen, listen, that's what Christmas is. Have you experienced it? Do you know it? I pray that you would. Let's pray. Right now, Father, we we come before you and ask you by your grace to bring us to understand the magnitude of what we say when we talk about becoming yours, Lord. That's not a small thing. That's not a simple thing. We don't become yours halfway. You invade. But that invasion is, is actually, Lord, is a rescue. You're taking us from ourselves and putting our eyes up towards you. You're taking us from dry water and giving us the water of life. You're taking us from our pride and you're giving us instead love, capital L, love, love with a face, love with a name, love that is Jesus, that is with us forever. Father, I pray today that you would have us ask these questions. Don't let Christians say, oh, I'm already a Christian. Father, it's Christians that need to remember this stuff moment by moment so that they continue to trust themselves to a God who saves, to let that poieo take place, that workmanship take place, Father. And for those that are maybe far from you this morning, I pray that they would be attracted to you, the full understanding of what's involved here, that they might become yours by faith. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.